This episode is brought to you in part by Regent College, Vancouver, Canada. Experience God's call to a life more abundant with our one to two week summer courses. Sign up today at rgnt.net slash summer. Let's suppose you're attacked from a building and you're receiving fire from a building. In most circumstances, depending on the size of the building and, and what you know about the presence of civilians, you can respond by destroying that building. You don't have to respond with the exact kind of weapon that they attack you with. From Christianity Today, you're listening to The Bulletin, a podcast about the people, events, and issues that are shaping our world. I'm Mike Cosper, and today on our show, we're continuing our special coverage of the Israel-Hamas war. Now, if you've been following the news, if you're on social media, if you're reading the news or watching television, frankly, if you find yourself in a conversation with a passionate person about this war, you're going to hear the phrase war crimes. I heard it a lot two weeks ago when an explosion at a Gaza hospital was blamed on an Israeli airstrike. And of course, you're hearing it a lot right now, too, as the Israeli Defense Forces continue their assault on Gaza. They're bombing residential structures. There's a tragic number of civilian deaths. There's a siege. Israel is limiting or stopping the flow of water, electricity, and communications to and from Gaza. And then people will talk about the history of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. They'll talk about settlements and occupation and aggression. All of this gets labeled a war crime. And of course, that label comes from the other direction too. The massacre on October 7th, the endless rocket attacks. These also get labeled war crimes. Well, what do we make of it? How do we talk about the loss of life in Gaza and in Israel? And what are the real-world legal claims that either side can justifiably make? What is a war crime? To answer that question, I sat down with David French. David is a columnist for the New York Times. He's also a former attorney who has argued cases of constitutional law before the Supreme Court. In addition to that, when he was 36, David enlisted in the Army Reserves. This was in 2005, the height of the war against al-Qaeda in Iraq. He deployed there as a JAG in 2007, and he was awarded the Bronze Star for his service. David's been on the bulletin several times before, and I'm always glad to have him back. This was a spirited conversation at times, and this topic is one where his experience and expertise are particularly valuable. So, stay with us. As a little bit of a roadmap for our listeners, I want to start by talking about this concept, the law of armed conflict. What do we mean by the law of war, war crimes, stuff that you hear thrown around a lot by politicians, activists, journalists all the time. So let's start at the beginning here. The law of armed conflict, the law of war, what does that refer to? Yeah, what the law of war refers to are really two concepts. So one of them would be called, you know, there's an old Latin term for it, jus ad bellum and just in bellum. So in other words, it is what is the legal justification to go to war? So what is the the reason for war? You cannot go to war for territorial conquest, for example. So is the reason for a war legal? And then is your conduct within the war legal? So you can commit a war crime by launching a war of aggression, for example, which is what Russia did to Ukraine in 2022 and in 2014, for that matter. So that would be a war crime by launching a war of aggression. And then once a war is launched, whether it's launched for a legitimate or an illegitimate reason, you can commit additional war crimes if you can conduct yourself 
in a way that violates a series of international treaties and agreements. Yeah. So in conducting a war, there's sort of these five laws, right? Could you break that down a little bit too as we get into this? Yeah. So there are basically five general principles of the law of armed conflict. And three of them are kind of first among equals. Once you're in combat, uh, these are the laws of war applicable when you're, this is the jus in bellum element. When it comes to the jus ad bellum, mm-hmm. aggressive war is banned by international treaty, but you can defend yourself. There can be a right of collective self-defense. But if you're in the jus in bellum, so military necessity, humanity, honor, distinction, and proportionality are the five main principles, sort of the pillars. Military necessity is the first one. And what that means is, you may only attack targets and individuals that are necessary to accomplish the military objective. So don't destroy buildings, don't destroy fixtures, don't attack people. When attacking those people or destroying those buildings is ancillary to the military objective. So if you need to destroy one bridge, don't destroy all the bridges across a particular river, just to take an example. So that's one. Then you have humanity. So Humanity is essentially a principle that says, while war is hellish, you can't make it worse through the use of weapons or tactics that cause unnecessary suffering. So this is one reason, for example, why there are no uh, hollow point bullets, for example, are not used in the military because a hollow point bullet inflicts catastrophic additional physical injury. And there are other things that you're not supposed to do on the basis of humanity because they just inflict unnecessary suffering. Honor, or another term for it is chivalry, is a concept that's kind of tough to define, but it demands a kind of basic mutual respect and fairness between the parties. And this really dates back to, you know, if you're talking about, you remember, you know, if you were watching older movies or movies about 18th century or Revolutionary War combat or even Civil War combat, how there would be informal agreements between the parties, for example, to remove wounded from the battlefield, remove the dead from the battlefield, or the way in which opposing forces would talk to each other and communicate with each other to exchange prisoners, things like that. That would be kind of a definition of honor or chivalry. Then there's distinction, which is, this might be the most important concept. Another term for it is discrimination. And the obligation of distinction is that all sides are supposed to distinguish between combatants and military objectives. One of the ways that you comply with the distinction, so you have a requirement to distinguish the opposing force, and you have a requirement to distinguish yourself. So that means wearing a uniform, flying planes that have a distinctive insignia, using uh, vehicles or weapons that are vehicles that have distinctive uh, appearance or insignia so that people know they're attacking a military target. If you are hiding amongst civilians, you're violating the principle of distinction. If you're not wearing any uniforms, you're violating the principle of distinction. If you're not carrying arms openly, you're violating the principle of distinction. And the last one, proportionality is a a concept that's extremely misunderstood. So what a proportionality means is you're required to use the level of force necessary to deal with a military threat, but not a level of force excessive beyond what is necessary to deal with the threat. So to take, for example, let's suppose you're attacked from a building and you're receiving fire from a building. 
in most circumstances, depending on the size of the building and, and what you know about the presence of civilians, you can respond by destroying that building. You don't have to respond with the exact kind of weapon that they attack you with. So if you're attacked by a rifle, you don't have to respond with a rifle. You can respond with a missile. But you're dealing with that threat and nothing beyond the threat. So you could destroy the building, but not the city block, <laughs> just to take an example. And a lot of people misunderstand this. They think, well, if you're attacked with a rifle, you need to respond with a rifle. Or that in a weird sense, some people say, well, if you receive casualties, like if if you've lost 10 soldiers, if you right. kill 100 soldiers on the other side, that's not proportional. But that's not what that means at all. Right. Yeah, no, I think I think that's such an important distinction. And it is so confusing because, I mean, the word... Obviously, the word proportional, we hear it and we think proportion. Like in this in this particular instance, Israel lost fourteen hundred people. That means they once they've killed fourteen hundred people in Gaza, they've exceeded their limit, as though that were the the way these things were tallied or or what any of this kind of law meant. Yeah, and to be very precise about that, one of your goals as a military is to inflict disproportionate losses on the enemy. So. Russia has taken far greater casualties by all accounts than Ukraine. That doesn't mean that Ukraine is violating the principle of proportionality. It's mean that Ukraine is being quite militarily successful in taking on Russian forces. Yeah. Let's situate these then, right? This is the law of armed conflict, but obviously like there's no referees on the battlefield. So how does this play out? Like, you know, when someone says, oh, that was a war crime, what does that actually mean? How is that affected, prosecuted, enforced? Yeah. Is there any mechanism for it? 90% of the time when people say, look at, say, something that the IDF has done or the U.S. military has done and say, that's a war crime, take that with a big grain of salt. Because <laughs> the vast majority of people just don't know what these things are. And they look at any death of civilians as proof of a war crime. That is not the way it works at all. But- Enforcement, man, that is, Mike, that's the $64,000 question. So there are two main mechanisms of enforcement, only one of which is truly effective. So the main mechanism of enforcement of war crimes for the United States military is United States law. The Uniform Code of Military Justice in American law incorporates international law of armed conflict into American military justice so that if you violate the international law of armed conflict, as an American soldier, you can be subject to American military discipline. And the bottom line is that is the primary way we enforce the law of armed conflict against our own soldiers. It's not through international tribunals. In fact, we have not agreed to the jurisdiction of some of these international tribunals. We have not what's called acceded or agreed to the Rome Statute, which established an international criminal court. So, it's domestic law. Similarly for Israel, they have a domestic law of land warfare manual. Now, how is Hamas regulated by the international law of armed conflict? Well, in two ways. One, in theory, they could be held responsible in the international criminal court. Hamas leaders could, in theory, be held responsible, although that is very, very difficult. But the actual more practical way in which Hamas terrorists are held responsible for interna violations of international law is through criminal process directed by a victorious military force. So when Americans seize unlawful combatants, for example, we are able to prosecute them for their war crimes. 
in a way you cannot do it if you see somebody who's a prisoner of war in a conventional conflict where both sides comply with laws of armed conflict. Their conduct in war is not a crime. And so you can only hold them until the cessation of hostilities and then you release them. But say if Hamas or Al-Qaeda or ISIS members commit war crimes, when we capture them, we can hold them criminally responsible and do. You know, now it's unfolding very slowly in Guantanamo. I mean, very slowly. But the reason why we continue to hold some of these Al-Qaeda figures in Guantanamo is they're war criminals. They're not prisoners of war. And so there's this phrase that's often used in the context of law of armed conflict, and that is victor's justice. And that has both a positive and a negative connotation. The negative connotation is sort of like the victors get to do what they want to do. (laughs) The positive connotation is that if you are victorious, you can actually impose justice. Think of the Nuremberg trials, for example. Yeah, I think this is a helpful distinction to think of. Al-Qaeda fighters were not a militarized force. They were not fighting with distinction. They were not (laughs) in uniform. They were using tactics that violated all kinds of codes of international law as a matter of their own sort of battlefield tactics. Right. So it's not like when the war is over, you then return them to the care of the nation state to which that they were a part of, and they go back to being a regular citizen soldier and back to a regular life. That doesn't work in this case. Guantanamo Bay is one of those things that kind of hangs in the imagination as Americans fought a war in Afghanistan. They rounded up a bunch of these guys. They threw them in Guantanamo Bay, and they just kept them there forever. Right. And I think that's a very confusing point. And one of the reasons why I think it matters is I actually think when I look at what seems to me to be a deeply problematic lack of moral clarity about this moment and this fight is a little bit of a hangover from the perceptions of the aftermath of the war in Iraq, the war in Afghanistan, the war against ISIS, and moral confusion around those kinds of circumstances, those kinds of situations. Why is there a jail full of people in Guantanamo Bay? Yeah, And that's where all these things matter so much. Yeah, that's exactly right. Because one of the things you have to understand is the law of armed conflict cannot work as a construct unless there are penalties for its violation. And By the way, the penalties cannot all go one way. So, for example, if you are fighting, if you are a lawful combatant like the United States strives to be, although we have had individual instances of war crimes, Mm -hmm. then if you create a construct in which one side can violate the laws of war with impunity and we have to comply, then the pressure that is put on the complying party can be unbearable and could represent an existential threat to the complying party. Because one of the elements of international law is you have have a right to defend yourself. Now, you have to defend yourself in conformance with the law of armed conflict, but you have a right to defend yourself. And so the way the law of armed conflict tries to deal with this disparity between a complying party and a non-complying party is making sure that the non-complying party bears the legal and moral responsibility for the consequences of its non-compliance. And so if you read a story and it says Israel bombed a building and there were nine civilians in there who were killed, many people's first thought is, well, that's Israel's fault legally and morally that nine civilians were killed. If you know about the law of armed conflict, your immediate response is, no, that's Hamas's legal and moral responsibility that those nine civilians were killed unless Israel 
disregarded any sort of targeting procedures or was gross, was reckless. But so every time you see these casualty counts in Gaza and the absence of evidence, and again, evidence that Israel has behaved recklessly in its targeting, all of those casualties are the legal and moral responsibility of Hamas. They launched an aggressive war with Israel in violation of the law of armed conflict. They're violating the principle of distinction. They're violating the principle of military necessity. They're violating all of them. Yeah, the hospital bombing the other night, to me, was a perfect example of this, right? Pretty much by all accounts, evidence points to a rocket fired from Gaza, misfired, hits a parking lot outside of a hospital in Gaza, and there were multiple fatalities. It's still a little fuzzy as to who fired the rocket and how many people died and all of that. But I think what's fascinating about it is that famously when the explosion happened, a number of media organizations immediately blamed Israel. Hamas announced that it was an airstrike, hundreds were dead, immediately blamed Israel, all of that, and called it a war crime, quickly labeled it a war crime. The fact was, in hindsight, knowing what it is now, it is a war crime, but it was not a war crime on the side of Israel. It was a war crime on the side of Hamas for many of these reasons, like the lack of distinction, the lack of necessity. I mean, the nature of the rockets that are constantly being fired by Hamas, 7,500 of them at this point, indiscriminately targeting civilians in Israel. Every single one of those 7,500 rockets is a war crime. Exactly. That's 7,500 counts in a war crimes indictment right there. So, Let's break that down. So number one, an unguided rocket into civilian spaces is a war crime. The best available evidence is the rocket either landed short or broke up in midair and landed in Gaza. Undeniably, that would be the legal responsibility of Palestinian Islamic Jihad or Hamas, whoever fired it. So that's really clear. But let's get to the tougher thing, Mike. Let's suppose we're on Earth too. The evidence wasn't that it was a Palestinian rocket, but the evidence was it's an Israeli bomb. Would that be proof of a war crime? No, and here's why. And notice I said proof, okay? And here's why. Hamas uses what are called protected objects, churches, schools, mosques, etc., hospitals. It uses them for military purposes. So they will store weapons in hospitals. They will put command centers in mosques. They will shoot at Israeli targets from churches or hospitals. So they will use these protected sites intentionally because they're protected sites to try to protect them from bombing. But here's what's very important. Under the laws of war, when you use a protected site for a military purpose, it becomes a military target. So remember, the laws of war are designed to not grant an advantage to a non-complying party. So if you don't comply because you are wanting to shelter your weapons from airstrikes and you put them in a hospital, Israel still has distinction and proportionality requirements. In other words, it has to feel pretty confident there are weapons in the hospital. If it knows there's, say, one Hamas commander in a hospital and there's a thousand civilians, proportionality would say, you can try to target the one Hamas commander, but don't bring down the whole building on 1,000 people, right? So it's not as if once there's a military use of the hospital, it immediately removes all other considerations, but it does make the hospital a military target. And so the process here, Mike, is very obvious to anyone who really understands what's going on. Hamas violates the laws of war in its attack 
it violates the laws of war in its defense, and then uses the resulting death and destruction to try to place Israel in the position of declining to defend itself, lest it create more international outcry as a result of civilian deaths that are actually Hamas's fault. Right. And that's the dynamic. Yeah, because I, I, I was familiar with the fact that Hamas often caches weapons and puts command centers inside these civilian targets and all of this. And I think part of what has had me a little trepidatious in the days since then, even as it's been unwound and the story has been corrected, is the awareness if you've read up on how Hamas operates and what their command centers look like inside Gaza and the tunnel network and everything. The center of operations for them, the center of the action is Shifa Hospital in Gaza. Okay, Israel didn't attack this hospital. This is not true. But they're probably going to have to take Shifa Hospital if they're going to take Gaza. Yeah, you know, we faced this exact issue when I was in Iraq. Not to the same extent with this giant sprawling hospital with apparently large-scale military operations being run from it. But we did have a situation where we had intelligence that a suicide bombing ring was being run out of a hospital and that there were specific Al-Qaeda senior leaders in a hospital. Now, do you bomb the hospital or do you raid the hospital? But the one thing that was not an option for us was leaving the hospital alone, okay? Because at that point in time in our deployment, Diyala province, Iraq, was the female suicide bombing capital of the world. In other words, a suicide bombing ring that coerced women into becoming suicide bombers in some of the most grotesque ways you can imagine. And they were killing, these poor women, coerced into becoming suicide bombers, were then killing Iraqi civilians at a horrifying rate, just horrifying. So we couldn't let this continue, right? But we didn't bomb the hospital, we raided the hospital with boots on the ground. Thankfully, we didn't have to engage in any violence when we raided it. The people who we were looking for were not there. We found them later at a different location. But this also gets to the risk tolerance. So one of the hidden realities of the success of the surge in Iraq is that we increased our tolerance for casualties on the part of Americans to get very up close on the ground in towns and cities and villages. And that's deadly, horrible, dangerous work. But that's also one of the ways that we complied with the laws of armed conflict was by moving aggressively on the ground, boots on the ground into these towns and cities so that we could be very precise in targeting and didn't have to rely on air power to try to see through reinforced concrete, which you can't do. And so the violation of the laws of armed conflict result in just a series of bad choices for an attacker. But the bottom line is if you're defending a civilian population from terrorists, just just sort of say, what's too hard, the terrorists get to win, Mm -hmm. has horrific consequences all its own. I was thinking through the laws of armed conflict before we talked, and even just the notion of necessity, military necessity as a target. You know, these kibbutzim that were the targets of some of the worst of these atrocities and the worst of these attacks, these are not illegal settlements. These kibbutzim are decades and decades and decades old. They're the hub of the most progressive set in Israeli culture who are working for two-state solutions and hiring Gazans to come over and work on their farm. Let me make this as clear as day. If someone says settlers are legitimate military targets or off-duty 
or the fact that Israeli citizens have mandatory conscription, and so therefore Israeli civilians aren't really civilians, or that there is a right of resistance that exists for marginalized peoples that removes them from the laws of war. All of that is a synonym for I have no clue what I'm talking about. <laughs> I don't know anything about the laws of war, and you should not listen to anything I have to say about this subject. <laughs> they might have some interesting insights as to the conditions on the ground in Gaza or the history of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, but they're coming out there saying that settler colonialism removes you from the protections of you know normal civilian protections. They're just saying, I don't know what I'm talking about. So let's flip this for a second here then. The argument that you do hear, and you hear this much more broadly than I think the, the sort of extreme progressive versions of it, but you do hear this idea that Israel has violated international law in various ways with the settlements in the West Bank or with the siege, that Gaza is an open-air prison, that there's a blockade, that they've created the conditions in which terror is going to thrive because they've killed thousands. How do you respond to that? That's a much more rational question. Mm -hmm. And so the question then becomes, does a Palestinian in the territories, whether in the West Bank or Gaza, have what's called a right of resistance? Do they have just ad bellum? In other words, do they have a right to attack Israeli targets to initiate, say, a war for independence, for example? I think that is a very debatable proposition. My general view is under the current facts, they do not have a right of armed resistance. They certainly have a right of nonviolent resistance, absolutely 100% unquestioned. But under the current facts, do they have a right of armed resistance? I don't believe so. Now, what I will say is that even if they had a right of armed resistance, so even if you could look at all of the facts and you said, that Hamas in Gaza has a right of armed resistance to Israel, they would still have to comply with the laws of war, right? So they would still have to engage Israel with necessity, distinction, proportionality, etc. But under the current facts, do they have a right to attack right. the state of Israel? And that I say, I do not believe they do under international law. But even if they did, they still have to comply with the laws. It's very important to know that Israel does not actually occupy Gaza. It pulled out of Gaza years ago. Hamas is the government of Gaza. Now, Israel does have an economic blockade, but economic sanctions are not a justification for war. Right. And so, yes, there are economic sanctions that Israel imposes in its mm -hmm. relationship with Gaza. What's an example of a different conflict in which there's this kind of tension that rises to the level of a justification for armed resistance? Well, so for example, where you would have a justification for what would be called partisan or guerrilla warfare would be sections of occupied Donbass in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. So you've had an army in violation of the laws of armed conflict engage in an act of aggressive war that then means that you are in a violently occupied territory and it's violently occupied in violation of the laws of war. That's an easy call, right? What makes, for example, the West Bank yeah. different than, say, occupied Donbass is the status of the West Bank has never been settled under international law. So, for example, when the UN partition plan came out, the original plan was for a Jewish nation, Israel, 
and a Palestinian nation. So the Jewish nation, Israel, declared its independence, and it was immediately attacked by multiple Arab countries. Egypt occupied Gaza, and Jordan occupied the West Bank. So there wasn't a Palestine in existence then either. Israel has, to greater or lesser degrees, occupied the West Bank, but it didn't seize the West Bank from Palestine. It seized it from Jordan. And so it's a hopelessly complicated situation, and not enough people talk about this, Mike, made incredibly complicated, not just by Israel, but by the way the Arab nations have treated the Palestinians. So if we're going to talk about the horrible way in which the Palestinian people have been treated, you cannot leave out the Arab nations. And they get off scot-free for this in international opinion. International opinion focuses on Israel like a laser, when the reality is the way Egypt and Jordan treated the Palestinians was abysmal, abysmal, and the way they continue to treat. All right, let's take a quick break. And we will be right back. Nicole here. If you're looking for a podcast that features inspiring conversations with theologians, ministers, and pastors, then I recommend adding the acclaimed show No Small Endeavor to your podcast queue. Produced by Great Feeling Studios and PRX, No Small Endeavor explores what it means to live a good life. Each episode, host Lee C. Camp sits down with special guests like the queen of Christian pop, Amy Grant, and pastor and theologian Tish Harrison Warren to ask what it means to live a life worth living. If you're looking for somewhere to start, check out their new episode with Malcolm Gladwell, New York Times bestselling author and host of the wildly popular podcast Revisionist History. They explore how Malcolm became a stellar storyteller, some of the things he may or may not regret, and so much more. It's absolutely worth a listen. Don't miss out. Follow No Small Endeavor wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you in part by Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. Pittsburgh Theological Seminary students are grounded in faith and formed in community. PTS students are preparing for ministry with Master of Divinity, Master of Arts, Doctor of Ministry, and Certificate Programs. Begin your Master's or Certificate Program in person or online. Financial aid is available. Visit pts.edu admit. Okay, so I want to go back to 2005. You were 36 years old. So you're a Harvard-trained lawyer, you're arguing cases in front of the Supreme Court, you were, you were lecturing at universities, and you chose to enlist in the Army Reserves. What was behind that? Yeah, Mike, it was really a pretty simple response, which is, I just couldn't in good conscience keep supporting a war that I wasn't willing to deploy to myself. And the trigger moment for that belief was when I was reading a newspaper article in 2005 and it was talking about how the military was really having trouble recruiting, the army in particular, because it was taking higher and higher casualties in Iraq. And, you know, I said to my wife out loud, I said, are we as a nation too soft to fight a long war? And then as soon as those words came out of my mouth, I thought, well, what the heck am I doing? I have this great life. I have a great apartment in Philadelphia. I'm running FIRE, a foundation for individual rights and expression. I've got a great family. At that time, two kids who were awesome kids. I was just, just sitting there a beneficiary 
of everybody else's sacrifice, right? And so I just felt really deeply convicted. I also, in the same article, I saw that they had raised the recruiting age to 35 and I was 36 and I knew that I could get an age waiver just one year above the limit. And so I went into the recruiting station in Center City, Philly. It was like, uh, yeah, I'm too old, um, but I think I can get an age waiver and I wanna join the JAG Corps, can you guys help me? And they had no idea what to do with me. They're used to recruiting like kids out of high school for the infantry. And here I walk in like a, uh, at the time, slightly pudgy bald lawyer talking about joining the JAG Corps, but they were very kind. They directed me to get an army physical, which I barely passed. <laughs> and then six months later, I was an officer basic at age 37. Hmm. And let's just say I didn't exactly set the world on fire in, in officer basic. I, but I made it through, finished my army legal education in April of 07 and left home to deploy at the end of October. So what was going on in Iraq at the time when you deployed? And where were you at the time? Yeah, so this was the height of the surge. So if you remember, we toppled Saddam Hussein's regime in an unexpectedly easy fashion. So the first phase of the war went better than the army thought it would go. And then everything that followed was harder than we thought it would be. So Hmm. we overestimated how difficult it would be to take down the Hussein uh, regime, and we underestimated how difficult it would be to govern Iraq. And so by 05, Iraq was just in a state of collapse. It was just chaos. Our strategy wasn't working. It was failing. And so George Bush made the decision, I believe final decision in 06, to not abandon the country, but to double down and to change tactics, to reinforce. And so that was called the surge, which is now famous in the history of the Iraq war. We dramatically increased the number of troops in country, and more importantly, we dramatically changed our tactics to be much more engaged with the population, much more in the middle of the population. And so that's when we deployed, and we were in Diyala province, which was east of Baghdad. We were along the Iranian border. And when al-Qaeda was defeated in Baghdad, it spread north to Mosul and east to Diyala. And so when we landed in Diyala, Diyala was largely under the control of al-Qaeda in Iraq. In fact, some elements of it started to call the Diyala province the Islamic Caliphate of Iraq. We flew into what was essentially enemy-held territory and then engaged in daily or near-daily combat to retake it for the next, you know, eight, nine months. It was brutal. But by September of 2008, when our unit pulled out of Diyala, we had largely won the war against Al-Qaeda in our area of operations. And that was the story throughout much of Iraq. It was one of the more successful counterinsurgency operations in American military history. And I was there, got there at pretty much the height of it, and was there long enough to start to see the light at the end of the tunnel. What were you up against when you came in to these places? Because I do wonder, as hellish as what we saw on October 7th was, it feels like it's the tip of the iceberg for what, obviously, what they're capable of, what ISIS and what al-Qaeda have sort of demonstrated across the region in these, in these urban conflicts before. Yeah. I wonder if you could talk about that at all. Yeah. One thing that's super important for people to understand is there's nothing new about what Hamas did. What Hamas did, filming its executions, burning people alive, 
rape, all of this stuff, mass murder, that's what ISIS did. And we saw that. That's one of the reasons why Americans were so shocked and stunned and why Obama went back into Iraq after we'd pulled out to defeat ISIS. And a lot of people forget that the ISIS offensive, the anti-ISIS offensive that ended in 2017, 2018 under Trump started under Barack Obama. Trump inherited a military offensive against ISIS. And then also what ISIS did in 2014 that shocked the world, Al-Qaeda in Iraq was doing in 2007, but the world didn't know about it as much because it wasn't being put on YouTube. It wasn't being spread around the world. You know, there wasn't the same propaganda operation. But Mike, what Al-Qaeda in Iraq was doing in our area of operations was brutal beyond human imagination. I've seen things that I can never get out of my mind as long as I live. For example, uh, when Al-Qaeda would, instead of uploading videos to the web of its atrocities or having them on GoPros, like were shown when the IDF screened some of these atrocities for reporters, they would record them on little handheld cameras and put them on DVDs. And we would capture the DVDs because the DVDs would spread. They would share them sort of like war porn. You know, look what we did. I don't want to describe it for your podcast audience. And I feel conflicted about this because sometimes I feel like people need to know. But then other times I also know that people are listening with kids in the car or you're on your way to work. You don't need these images in your mind. You know, when a lot of people look at all of these conundrums and all of these tragic circumstances surrounding the law of war and fighting and how hard it was, they say, well, why would you do Mm -hmm. it? Why would we do it? And I say, because of the evil of the enemy. And we could not leave, abandon the people of Iraq to that depravity. You know, it's why there was not very much controversy in the U.S. when we went back into Iraq to clean ISIS out of northern Iraq and northern Syria, because it was so obvious, ISIS's atrocities were so obvious that there was widespread consensus that ISIS could not be permitted to control parts of Iraq and Syria. And the interesting thing to me is why why do some people have a different view of Hamas? Mm. Why are they holding Israel to a standard that the world did not hold America and Iraq and Britain and France to after the rise of ISIS? And part of it is actually, Mike, anti-Semitism. Part of it is anti-Semitism. If you are treating Israel differently and worse than you're treating another country, that's a leading edge indicator of anti-Semitism. And treating Jews as sort of a people apart that are subject to Everything from threats and intimidation to sort of a conspiratorial thinking that they control the world or to, well, the Jewish people don't get to defend themselves the way that every other people on the face of the planet gets to defend themselves. That's all anti-Semitism. And I've been stunned a little bit. The speed at which I feel like that sentiment has, has generally turned. But to imagine that you have an enemy like this on your border who is essentially built this massive underground network for the sole purpose of doing this sort of thing to women, children, elderly people, Holocaust survivors. It's the idea that you would say, let's get to a ceasefire as quickly as possible rather than let's make our citizens safe. I mean, there's almost a covenantal duty as a state to say we have to protect our people. It is especially pronounced when you realize the purpose for the founding of the state of Israel. And the purpose of the nation state of Israel is to give the Jewish people a home. 
but it's not a home if it's not safe. You know, that's why this is an existential threat. If there were, say, a thousand or so Israeli civilians or 1,200 or so killed in this attack, extrapolating that to the American population, oh goodness, Israel's about 9 million people and, and America's 300 million. Think about, just do the math there. So you're talking about 30 to 35 times, you know, more than 30 times, 35 times or so, it would be like 40,000 civilians just being massacred in one morning in the United States of America. And if our government couldn't protect us from that and deter that from happening again, we would look at our government and say, you have broken, as you say, your covenant with us. And so, and this is really important, Israel has an obligation to its citizens. So when we think about what it means to live with faithful presence in this moment and to speak the truth in this moment, for you, what do you think that looks like? I kind of have a special platform in both having this military legal experience and being privileged to write for the New York Times. So I have an educational mission, part of this. And I wrote an almost 3,000 word piece in the Times to try to educate readers about the scale of Israel's challenge, but also the laws of war that govern Israel's conduct and critically govern Hamas. People are just skipping right over Hamas's obligations and just talking only about what Israel has to do. But then there's another purpose as well, which is the purpose of the nation state of Israel is to provide a home for the Jewish people. And it has a sacred responsibility to its citizens to protect them. So outlining and describing these things are a big part of what I need to do. And then at the same time, without, and this is very important, we can't neglect that Israel does have both legal and moral obligations. And it is very difficult to uphold those legal and moral obligations in the middle of a conflict like this. So we have to look at this holistically. It has humanitarian obligations. The key here is balance. Mm. It is not to sit there and say, well, I sympathize with the plight of the Palestinians. Therefore, I'm going to essentially act as the Palestinians' lawyer in this and justify all that has happened and indict Israel for its response. But conversely, just like you can't say about the United States military that I just back it no matter what, you can't then flip it around and say, we are going to defend Israel no matter what. You can say, and I think it's right to say, we support Israel's right to defend itself within the laws of war. And you can advocate for that position. But I do think it is very important to not just sit there and, and just drop your battle lines and say, I'm an unpaid lawyer for the Palestinians or I'm an unpaid lawyer for Israel. Have an independent thought, apply independent thought, but mm -hmm. please make sure it's informed and realize that a lot of what you're hearing online is mm -hmm. misinformation, disinformation, and sometimes just outright confusion. And so um, be very careful about what reports and sources of news you look to before you draw decisive conclusions about the conflict. Well, David, thank you so much. I'm grateful that you made time for us. Oh, thanks so much, Mike. This is such a hard, sad time. It's important to try to shed more light than heat. No doubt. If we can. All right. Well, thank you so much. And thanks to all of you for listening. That's it for today. We will see you on Friday. Thanks for listening. The Bulletin is a production of Christianity Today. It's executive produced by Eric Petrick and Mike Cosper. This episode was produced by Mike Cosper, Clarissa Mall, and Matt Stevens. Post-production by David Lachance. Graphic design by Rick Schicks. Social media by Kate Lucky. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with our regular episode on Friday.
This episode was brought to you in part by Just These Guys, you know? A pastor and a psychologist team up to break down scripture and psychology, empowering you to transform by the renewing of your mind. Listen today at justtheseguys.podbean.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Just These Guys, you know?